George Pelicanus is an award-winning author, essayist, screenwriter, and producer from Washington, D.C. He has written over 20 novels and four series in the crime and detective fiction genre. He is also a recipient of the Los Angeles Times Book Prize, the Raymond Chandler Award, the Hammett Prize, the Barry Award, the Gumshoe Award, and the Grand Prix du Roman Noir Award. Pelicanus worked as a screenwriter for HBO's The Wire, where his writing earned him a Writers Guild of America Award, an Edgar Award, and a Falcon Award. Other shows he writes and or produces for are The Pacific, The Deuce, and Treme. George Pelicanus, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you. So you're going to read from uh, your latest book? Yes, The Man Who Came Uptown. It's a short section, and the protagonist, Michael Hudson, is uh, incarcerated at the D.C. jail, and uh, this is him at night. In his cell that night, lying in the upper bunk, which he had taken for its better light, Michael Hudson read a Western novel that Anna had chosen for him. It was one of two full-length novels that were bound in the same book, part of a series called Elmore Leonard's Western Roundup. This was volumes three. He'd been reading with urgency as it was almost time for Lights Out. He had just finished the novel and its last line had given him the chills. It had jacked him up to the degree that he had gone back to the first page with the intention of reading the book again. The name of the novel was Valdez's Coming. Michael reread its first two paragraphs. Picture the ground rising on the east side of the pasture with scrub trees thick on the slope and pines higher up. This is where everybody was. Not all in one place, but scattered in small groups. About a dozen men in the scrub, the front line, the shooters who couldn't just stand around. They fire at the shack when they felt like it, or when Mr. Tanner passed the word, they would all fire at once. Others were up in the pines and on the road that ran along the crest of the hill, some 300 yards from the shack across the pasture. Those watching made bets whether the man in the shack would give himself up or get shot first. Michael liked how the author set everything up real fast from jump. Like, without telling you too many details, you knew right away what was happening. It gave you a feeling and made you choose a side. There's a man in the shack and he's outnumbered and outgunned. And there are many men on the high ground shooting down on the man who is alone. And there's a man in charge named Tanner who has given the orders. Straight on, because most folks side with the underdog, you're hoping that someone helps the man in the shack and stops this man, Tanner. The man you think is going to help is a Mexican constable and former soldier named Bob Valdez. He comes on the scene and does something, is tricked into it, really, that is unexpected. And then Tanner, being who he is, does the Mexican dirt. Valdez is a man who is alone, and Tanner is powerful and he has many men backing him up. So Tanner shoves Valdez because he can. And the more he shoves him, the harder Valdez gets and the more he pushes back. By the end of the book, Tanner realizes that he should have given Valdez what he wanted to begin with, which was not much at all. It wouldn't have cost so much. Picture the ground rising on the east side of the pasture. Picture it. 
the author, Mr. Leonard, is telling you to look at it, to see it in your head. It's a bold way to start the story, but it does what it sets out to do. Michael could picture the rise of the land and the pines and the men in groups firing down on the one man who was cornered in his shack. And Michael could guess what wasn't on the page because of the vivid description of what was. Maybe there was a chill in the air since they were high up in those hills. Maybe there were cotton white clouds moving across a bright blue sky and shadows on the pines when those clouds drifted across the sun. Michael closed his eyes. When he read a book, he wasn't in his cage anymore. There wasn't a lock on his door or the rank smell of the dirty commode by the bunk or his low ass cellmate passing gas in his sleep or the sounds of men shouting in the unit. Guards telling him what and what not to do. He hadn't disappointed his mother. He wasn't looking at five years in a federal prison on a felony gun charge. When he read a book, the door to his cell was open. He could step right through it. He could walk those hills under that big blue sky, breathe the fresh air around him, see the shadows moving over the trees. When he read a book, he was not locked up. He was free. I think that that's so beautiful. I mean, you've spoken about it. Uh, it's really the redemptive power of reading and uh, how, um, you know, we can read ourselves to a better future, all of us. And you, uh, you have been, I don't know how many years you've been going into the prison libraries. And uh, just tell us a, a bit about that. I, I started going out of curiosity and, and, and there was a group here called Free Minds Book Clubs that actually does reading programs with um, juveniles who are locked up as adults. In other words, they've committed serious crimes and they're waiting to um, transition into the federal prison system when they turn 18 years old. So they're looking at a pretty grim future. And most of these uh, young men, it's, it's men because they don't send me in with women. They haven't, you know, they haven't read many books. So they're getting turned on to this for the first time. And that was true as well of, of the adults when I, I mean, when I, once I got into this, I started visiting the adults and running a book club there as well. And a lot, um, a lot of these men hadn't been readers before they got locked up. And they became voracious readers because of the boredom of, um, of, of incarceration, but also just to discover this, this joy of, of reading. And, and like it said in that passage, when, when you, you know, reading is escape. That's not a bad thing. You know, people talk about escapist literature and all that. All reading is escape. Raymond Chandler said that. For, for people who are locked up, it's, it really is escape. They go into their cells and they read and they go somewhere else. That's what reading does to everybody. It takes you somewhere else, out of your own experience, into the new and and that brings in things to your your psyche it's, it's just enlivens you i think that also it's you know 
obviously it educates or while you're entertaining them. I mean, what I love about your books is that, of course, you have these ripping plots that bring us along and you're following a crime and we want that resolution. But it's really about the characters. And I can imagine for, because I understand that your books are um, very popular in prisons too, not just because you're going in, but you're you're offering them windows onto different um, elements within society so that when I, cause I think that you've had like friendships with um, some has, after they've been released, I don't know how it is. Cause you kind of, it's kind of almost collaborative. Yeah. I followed some people um, after they've come out. I published a guy who, who's now went back in and, and died in, in jail um, because of the conditions there in the summer, they didn't have air conditioning and this guy was pretty old and he ended up, um, dying of cardiac arrest one day in, in the summer. But I published a short story of his. And, you know, I've, I followed some of these kids that have, that have come out and they've come back. And, and a lot of them have come back and into the community and they're helping other kids who are in trouble. There's a big tradition here of, through punk rock of a lot of the punk rock people that I knew when I was younger who were in bands are now out there doing a lot of volunteer work and stuff and working with people in the city. So we have a real uh, community of that here. And, and the book thing is just an extension of that. It, it's, it's worth it. I think that if you can do something, you can, you can pull one person through the keyhole rather than trying to change society, you know? And if you can pull that person through the keyhole and help them, you've actually accomplished something. So I actually, I want to go a little bit back to, to the book because um, of the man who came uptown, because we didn't discuss it so much what happens after. I mean, we'll leave, we won't like have a spoiler, but um, then uh, Michael Hudson then gets, uh, he's released. And t tell us a little bit about that story. Well, the, the woman that's mentioned in that passage I wrote, Anna, is the prison librarian. And she turns him on to books. He He starts to have feelings for her that are not, um, entire, now I'm not talking about really romantic feelings, but he loves her because of what she's done for him. So he gets out and uh, a guy who got him off, a private detective is on a technicality has gotten him off, but now Michael owes this guy something. And the thing that he owes him is um, the man wants him to drive for him in a, a caper that they're doing. So he has to decide, he goes back home to his old neighborhood and he has to decide what kind of man he's going to be. He doesn't want to, he doesn't want to be a criminal again. He just wants to, he just wants to get a job and, and read books. He gets his library card and, and he doesn't want to disappoint his mother. And then he finds Anna's living in his neighborhood and they have a, they have a, again, a, a platonic relationship. Um, so the con central conflict of the book is, will he, become the man he wants to be or will he slip back to what he was and the way it's constructed is is that the books that he read in jail like Steinbeck specifically of Mice and Men and, and they have this book group where they discuss all this help him make that decision so in this case books have actually changed his life the course of his life and I think I think it is so beautiful. And I that's uh, the people. I think that people are talking a lot about. I mean, I'm always talking with writers, so I don't feel like there's a death of reading novels. But uh, I certainly remember a time when, um, you know, 
there was not so many other distractions and that people read in this deep way, the same as when you read when you're a child. Um, just tell me um, how, how, I understand that before you became a writer, you were interested, uh, you were studying film. Just tell me about your beginnings as a writer. I mean, I, I wanted, I always wanted to be a um, filmmaker before I thought I would be a novelist. I, I was in love with movies and, and, and I, fortunately, uh, I grew up in a time when movies were excellent. N not just the ones that you, you know, the signposts like, um, you know, The Godfather and, and, and Mean Streets and all these films, uh, Peck and Paws, The Wild Bunch, all these, but also exploitation and black exploitation films. I went all over the city and seek of those, in, uh, seeking out those, those movies. And that's how I got my film education. What happened was, is I went, I went to the state school, the University of Maryland, and I was a film major there and with the intention of becoming a filmmaker. And in my senior year, I took a class in crime fiction by a professor named Charles Misch. And he turned me on to books. I wasn't a book reader before that. And the reason those books spoke to me was they weren't the kind of books that were forced upon me when I was in high school like the Scarlet Letter and things of that nature, which had no relevance to my life. I was a blue collar kid, you know, that my dad owned a diner and, and I couldn't find anything in those books that spoke to my world. So I started reading these crime fiction novels in college and I sort of changed direction. And I thought, well, maybe, you know, very naively, I thought maybe I'll be a novelist. <laughs> and, and, um, and then through the back door, you know, if I get any renown for that, uh, people will come to me and say, do you want to write screenplays too? Or do you want to make movies? Completely naive about how things work. But lo and behold, that's exactly what happened. I became a novelist and because I had, had be, got some sort of reputation, Hollywood came calling to me and, say, and said, you know, they knocked on my door and said, do you want to write for us? That's what happened. Yeah, and I don't know the exact chronology. I mean, I, I've been following, of course, your wonderful television series. Um, but what was that uh, first film that you wrote? Was that original screenplay you did, adapting or? I had adapted uh, the no my novel King Suckerman in 1998. And it didn't get made, but um, as, as these things happen, the scripts go around Hollywood, you know, they go to the agents, they go to other studios. And I got a little work from that doing script doctoring. And then, um, in 19, uh, in 2002, right before then I met David Simon at a funeral for a mutual friend. He'd actually read my book, the sweet forever. And he saw that what I was doing in Washington, the kind of things I was writing in Washington, were very similar to what he was um, trying to get off the ground in Baltimore for television. And he asked me, uh, we went to this funeral and we rode back together to the, uh, to the, uh, to the Shiva. And he said, um, I've got this show at HBO that I'm, I just sold the pilot and would you, it's about cops and drug dealers. He undersold it to me. He didn't tell me about his grand plan. <laughs> and, uh, do you want to write one? I said, yeah. So actually I went, I went to Paris on a book tour and I knew that when I, I was sort of nervous because I knew that when I came back, I had to write that script and I had no idea what I was doing. 
um, came back and wrote it. Uh, short, the short story is people really liked it. It was the script where Wallace is killed by his friends. So that's how I got started. So you mentioned um, uh, King Suckerman, which I think that must have been such a fun um, novel to write because it's really, um, this is, it kind of relates to the Deuce, but it's, uh, it's in that same period of the 70s and black exploitation. Just talk a little bit about that because I, I love that novel. It was set during the bicentennial, 1976, and I was still a teenager, uh, but I remember that year more than any other year I've lived, probably. It was the pinnacle of a lot of things. Um, it was the top. The idea was that it was the top of the mountain that of fun that w we didn't realize then um, that we had to go down to the other side of the mountain. So you're climbing up, and all these fun things are happening. You're you're smoking weed, you're, you know, um, free love. You know, we partook, we partook of what the 60s generation kicked in the door for us in the 70s. And everything was, it was all good. You know, Reagan was on the horizon and, and everything that came with that, but we didn't know it. And, and the other thing was that um, the civil rights movement had opened a lot of doors for people to get to know each other friendships we felt like we felt very optimistic in that time that things were just going to get better and now we've seen that we were wrong which is the most um the most disheartening thing about our current situation in the united states is that we were wrong that um half of our country is is racist to put it bluntly, and that what happened back then didn't didn't take, and all these all these snakes have slithered out of the ground now, once again, that we have to that we have to deal with. Um, but the book itself was a lot of fun to write because it was a very it was a very fun time, and I wanted to and I wanted to talk about the relationship between the uh, our perception of of reality versus the reality of what's on screen. So there's a very important scene in that book that people will often say like to me, especially when I adapted for film, we don't need that. Why, why is that in there? Well, there's a scene where there's a kid in the bathroom of, of, of the movie, King Sucker Man, they're up in the bathroom and everybody's getting high and he's in the stall and he's looking through the, the crack in the door and it's the aspect ratio of a screen. So he thinks he's watching a movie in his mind because he's a teenager and everything's like that to him. But the whole thing is about the, real, the reality of the street intrudes upon all these people who have gone to this movie and kind of slaps them in the face and says, no, this is life and it's, and it's hard, man, it's tough. Going back a little bit, you wrote, you've written so much about uh, Washington, D.C., um, but in Hard Revolution, which is, uh, you share a bit of your personal story. It's dealing with uh, some of the events b before that, um, the King Suckerman. Just tell us a little bit about that and why that was important for you to write. Yeah, I actually waited. I always knew I wanted to write that book or write about the riots of 68, but I I waited until I had written, uh, it was my 12th novel. And the reason that I waited was because I didn't think I was good enough to write that book. And something that important 
and 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 detailed and all. So then um, I, I did it, but it's the most uh, heavily researched book that I've ever written, and and also the one that I probably put the most put the most into, both of myself and and just ambition. You know what I mean? Because I I wanted that to be the book that was on my tombstone. That remains to be seen. But the but the '68 riots were a big um, event here, and my my family had my grandfather had a di diner right in the middle of the riot where the riots were going on at for the 14th and U Street corridor. Um, so it impacted my family. But what's in the book is uh, in the very beginning. There's there's a young man, a boy who comes out of um, his church, Saint Sophia Greek Orthodox Cathedral. And he hears on a Sunday, and this was me, and this happened to me. I, I came out of there, and, and I was a kid, and I heard a voice, and I followed the voice across the street to the National Cathedral. And when I went behind the cathedral, there were thousands of people back there. I'm not kidding. There were th It was thousands. It wasn't. And th it was the overflow from what was inside, and what was inside was Martin Luther King, uh, was speaking, and this was March 31st, 1968. So uh, I listened to him, and I, I was really as I was an observant kid, which isn't surprising. And I was watching the people out there, and their attention was entirely focused on this man's voice. They had mounted speakers on the side of the cathedral, and I didn't really understand what he was saying, but. I knew that it was important. And four days later, he was uh, assassinated in Memphis. So we were talking about, um, yeah, the wire. What did you enjoy about that process or how, how did you transition into that? I'm, well, um, it was, it was a, an adjustment for me because I had been, at that point, I had written, um, uh, I, I don't know, 10 novels or something like that and by myself sitting in a room by myself and and working with one person who was my editor and then all of a sudden i had to go i'd never i'd never been to a writing school where they where you sit around with other students and and they critique your work and that kind of thing i don't think i'd like that um so but that's what happened i got in the writer's room with all these all these writers and there was a lot of uh critiquing what you had done and and there was a lot of discussion and then there was a lot of argument too and some of it was pretty um pretty aggressive so uh you had to get used to that you had to have a thick you had to have thick skin to be able to deal with that i found and but my whole thing was i wanted to get better um when i wrote my first script for the wire although certain things like the wallace murder were were untouched and they they went they were shot as i wrote them a large majority of that script was not was not uh shot as i wrote it um simon rewrote a lot of it and i called him up afterwards and i said what what happened to my script and he's like well you got you got about 30 percent of it you wrote about 30 percent of it so that's that's actually pretty good for a first time screenwriter um so you know, that's, a, that's at a point where a lot of novelists walk away. They just say, I'm not doing this anymore, you know, because what's mine is mine. I didn't get into this to get rewritten by somebody. 
but it had the opposite effect on me. I, it put a chip on my shoulder and I, I didn't say this to him, but I said to myself, all right, next script I write, I'm going to get 50%. And the one after that, I'm going to get 70%. Well, by, I wanted to learn and I did learn. And I also wanted to learn how to produce because I figured out that you don't really have control of anything until you're, until you're running a show. And that was, that became my goal. So I worked really hard on the wire for five years, five seasons. And, and I was on set every day. I was, I, I called a rap. I was in meetings and I learned to become a better, um, television screenwriter. And by the time of, um, season three, where I wrote the script Middle Ground, which is episode 311. It's the one where um, uh, Omar and Brother Muzone hunt down Stringer Bell. That was pretty much 98% written by me. And, um, and it's one of the best things I've ever written, I think. But I do, wanna, I do wanna point out that many writers don't wanna admit to this or say it, is that it's just words on a page until everybody else makes it come alive. And, you know, we had Idris Elba and, and Wood Harris in that scene, acting in that scene. I had Joe Chappelle shooting it. He was the director. All the craftsmen and artists that worked on that made it what, what it is. And that's actually what I like about, um, it's why I continue to work in television. I like working with all these artists. And I like getting together with these people and making something together. It's not just the writing. It's everything that everybody contributes to, to make it what it is. And then you have this object in your hand. It used to be a DVD <laughs> with a box cover, but you know, you have something, it's like a book. You've made it, but you've made it together. No, I think it's very beautiful and it's a miracle how it can all come together. I can't imagine and, and to deadline and, and all these things and to budget. And I remember something that a showrunner told me that I was surprised too, because you're talking about his words on the page. And, and this really, I thought, wow, this is someone, he writes poetry too. And he said, I don't, this seems odd. It is odd to speak to a novice about this. He said, I don't care about the words. He didn't care. He said he didn't care about the language. <laughs> I, was, I don't know about your, but your, your scripts are so beautifully articulate at the same time as being real. It's never sacrificing realism. But I thought, what well, a strange thing for a writer to say that he didn't care. I don't know. It didn't make sense. It, it brings up another point, Mia, that um, my scripts look different than other people's scripts, I think. Um, when you read Hollywood scripts and that's all they've done is, is write for Hollywood or write for network television, there's a lot of white space on the page. It's, it's mainly dialogue with very, um, very limited description. If you look at one of my scripts, the page is full of paragraphs. And in, in my head, I'm, I'm writing a novel. Um, and I, and in other words, when I, when I walk a character into a room, it's right there on the page, what's in that room, what they're wearing, what the music is, you know, what car they're driving. Um, it's very descriptive because I'm trying to control the process the way I control the process when I'm writing a novel. And, and that's what I, that's what I bring to it. But also as a showrunner, um, I, I sit in on every single meeting and prep costumes, hair and makeup, uh, props, picture cars, locations, everything. 
and we go through the script scene by scene so that when we get to set, there's not going to be any surprises. I know exactly what people are going to be wearing when they show up for set that day. And I know what cars are going to be, are going to be there. Um, You're a big it, car fan, I know. Yeah, I'm a huge car fan. And, and, and in a show like the, the Deuce, that was super important because um, I was um, one of the oldest guys there, meaning I was one of the only people who actually lived in that era in the 70s and, and can remember it. And it was super important to me to get it right um, because I see so many television shows and movies where they don't get it right, where it becomes a, especially the 70s, where they're actually kind of making fun of the fashions. And I mean, at the time we thought we were fly, you know, we, we were making fun of it. Well, the attention to de detail in that is, is so beautiful, but I actually, sorry, I, I've only seen the performance of your scripts, but as you write it as a novel, is it sometimes, is, is it hard for people to, um, I guess to interpret it, you know, like it's, I understand there is usually like much more like a blueprint like for people. Mm -hmm. um, it has all those poetic touches. It's really a novel. I, I feel like it is. I mean, I certainly, um, put as much into it as I do a novel. Um, we've hired novelists before who have come to the room and, and have actually said, this is going to be easy because um, I really work hard on my novels, but this is just dialogue and action. And you know what? None of those people made it. They, they ended up leaving because that's an insult to us. We, you know, we don't, deprioritize screenwriting as opposed to novel writing it's all the same you've got to you've got to convey your intent and all these emotions in many ways it's harder to write a script than it is a novel because you can't rely on the crutch of internal monologue or you can't get into the thoughts of the of the characters it has to be conveyed by action and dialogue and then so how you augment that is through description, parentheticals, things of that nature. And it's just as hard. And so as you are writing, because I don't know about the collaborative process, once you have it on the page, are you, um, you're open to some kind of interpretation or revision? Because I know, you know, writing then for James Franco, who is also a writer would, I mean, I don't know how many little adjustments go through it after it's on the page. We, uh, this was a little bit, uh, the deuce was a little bit of a different experience because um, we, we made James Franco and Maggie Gyllenhaal producers. That was their deal coming in. And we don't just give people titles. So we, that, that gained them entrance into our, into our circle. And, and James was actually in the writer's room all the time because he, was interested in the process and he wanted to he wanted to direct which he did direct several episodes um maggie was would call me frequently with notes on the script and um she's very smart and um you know i ended up taking most of the notes and if i and if i didn't agree you know we we talked about it respectfully and Sometimes I didn't take the notes, but her notes were, were good. So 
you know, you, you have to be open to that and hopefully you're working with smart people. Um, and, and in that case it worked, you know, it was, it was painless and actually what they contributed made it better. I would say that in, as in broadly, I would say that they made, they made the show better. Mm. Well, it's certainly so timely. And I think like now, and just we're in the middle of COVID, I think about the future of intimacy. And I don't know the plight of sex workers now, or I just, you know, you really chart that evolution from the 70s and then going forward to like what Times Square is today, completely different. Um, what, how are your perceptions, you know, deepened through, through the writing and uh, producing of that? Well, I think, um, I, let me put it to you this way. I wouldn't have done the deuce probably 20 years ago. Um, uh, you know, I'm like a lot of guys, I, you know, I, I thought I was a pretty good guy, but I wasn't that, I wasn't that interested in those issues as I, as I became. And, um, I've evolved, hopefully I've grown as a person and, and then I got to the point where I thought, well, David and I both thought, like, let's try, let's try to do this. Let's explore issues of um, uh, that women face. And I mean, the show is is really about the labor, is about labor, the hierarchy, and how women are always basically at the bottom, have always been at the bottom, and and prostitution and, and pornography, uh, porn actors and actresses are also at the bottom. So it's a labor show, which we're very, very interested in that subject. It's hard to get labor shows off the ground per se, um, but that's what it was. That's what it sort of was at the bottom. You know, it, it's about how women make it in, in society, how they can make it. And also how, how I loved uh, Candy's art. Candy's played by uh, Meg Gyllenhaal how she became an artist, the growth of an artist and how she started at, you know, in a very degrading profession. She was a streetwalker. Actually, she wasn't even a call girl and then worked her way up to becoming a, uh, a porn director and actually a, um, a, a film director who posthumously gets credit for her work. Um, so, so there was all that, but the other, the other thing we did was, we, we knew, um, you mentioned this earlier, that this subject was a minefield. You know, we, 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 had, we knew that we had to, if we were going to take it on, it was going to be a very difficult thing to pull off because you're doing a show about pornography on the surface. You have to show porn, but you're trying not, your aim is not to titillate people. Um, so we, from the beginning, the one note that we gave directors was, when you're when we're shooting porn when we're shooting porn for the show it can't be um it can't be sexy at all and you achieve that through um you know the way you shoot it lighting camera angles all that it's very cold and impersonal and awkward and there's nothing sexy about it but when you have two people who love each other who make love in the show it's it's we shoot it differently when there's love involved um, hopefully it's not stark, you know, it's not, um, it's not a stark difference, but it's subtle enough that people can, they can feel it. 
And then this, the other thing that we did was we recognized that we were two middle-aged white guys who um, don't know enough about women to write the show. So we got a lot of women writers and a lot of women directors, and we hired a lot of um, uh, department heads who were women. And by the way, we didn't have any trouble finding great, talented women. The last thing I want to do is say, um, look at me, world. I hired a bunch of women. I'm a great guy, you know? It's not like that. It's everybody was super qualified to do these jobs. And the show was better for it. Uh, I really, it was the best experience I've had in television. And I think if people are courageous to, to watch it, it allowed us to engage without judgment. Um, I don't know what you feel about, um, uh, how do you say, um, legalization of certain, um, you know, sex workers' rights or things like that? Well, in, in general, I'm for it. I, I don't, um, when people say it's a victimless crime, mm -hmm. that's not really true because um, many of the women that work in, in uh, that do sex work are abused. You know, they, have pimp, they still have pimps and things of that nature. And, and, and sometimes in the, when you get in the room, you know, they get hit. All these bad things happen. So um, I'm not against it morally. I just, I, at all, you know, I just, I, I hope that it's safer for people. And when it's, when it's more controlled and when it's more in the open, let's say it would be, it became, for lack of a better term, just to say it became legal. Well, then you'd have more, um, you would weed out the, the bad apples that are involved in that business in the same way that if you legalize marijuana, there's not going to be killing people killing each other over turf and real estate and bad deals and that sort of thing. When you legalize marijuana, you take the violence out of, um, out of the equation in the same way that prohibition, uh, when, when prohibition was lifted, you took the violence out of the liquor business and the same thing with sex work. So that's what needs to happen. It just needs to be, um, people can continue to do it and they need to, uh, but they need to do it safely. That's all. It's not a moral issue at all. Um, and, and we never, if you go to look at all our shows, we never, there's really no villains in our mm -hmm. show. We don't judge people. Same thing with Wire. Um, which confused a lot of people anyway, you know, like they want, you know, you see all these shows where the drug dealer is this uh, vicious killer and it's not really the way it is, you know what I mean? Um, and one of the proudest things that I, I think that I've been involved in was season four of The Wire. What, what happened in that, in that season was you saw what happened to kids over the course of a school year who live in the, in the inner city and and, it, and it, it spoke to the lie that we've heard all, all our lives that I've also heard when I was young is that people, adults would say to you, why can't those kids just get out of the ghetto? They, they, all they need to do is work hard like I did. Mm. And, and we, we put the reality uh, out there for America to see why it's very difficult for someone who's born in a place through no fault of their own is put, put behind from day one and has to fight most of their life just to 
just to get to first base when many Americans are born on third base. You know, the police um, uh, situation now in the country that we're all aware of, um, there's this, this I, I don't agree with this thing to defund the police. Police need more money for training and and um, and, and probably to get better people, you need to up the salaries. And um, but you also have to look at the system that causes that kind of behavior. And for since since the Reagan years, we've had this ridiculous war on drugs that not only destroys individuals and families, but um, makes it, it makes the police the enemy. If you if you live in a, in a family where you know oh, you have a brother or a sister or an uncle or mom and dad who have been incarcerated for a, drug, a nonviolent drug offense, then the law becomes the enemy. And the way law enforcement used to work is community policing. They got to know people in the community. But now that's not possible. Because of what the drug war has done. The other thing is that the the idea that go out and make arrests. I don't care what you do. We need numbers because um, in Baltimore at one time, and when, when Martin O'Malley was mayor, and he had he had designs on becoming governor and later president. All he wanted to do was get numbers up, arrests. So uh, at, at one time when he was mayor, one year there was. 100,000 arrests in Baltimore in a town of 600,000. population was 600,000. They locked up 100,000 people that year. Most of those people were nonviolent offenders. Okay? Even if you cut somebody loose the next day and you put them in jail for the night, they probably can't get to their job the next day, and most likely they're going to lose their job. I mean, all those lives were ruined. They were ruined. So... The system has to change. It's not about defunding the police or taking, or, or, or you know, taking their guns away or whatever. People want to be protected, but they want it done the right way. I am Dariana Davis, a sophomore media, journalism, and film communications major at Howard University in Washington, D.C., George Pelicano's home. Throughout this interview, Pelicano's proved himself as a progressive crime novelist and screenwriter. In his 2018 novel, The Man Who Came Uptown, he tells the story of an incarcerated man who finds freedom in reading. Reading novels mentally challenged the main character to the extent where he imagined the world of the book as he read it and brought himself there, defying the confinement of his cell. Pelicano seeks to humanize, often dehumanized criminals in his scripts rather than confirm people's biases and assumptions about them. He states that The Deuce is a show about labor, not just pornography, and how they hire a team of majority women to help tell the story. Even in The Wire, Pelicanos challenged the myth that hard work can take one far when there are clearly barriers set on certain people that attempt to limit how far they can go. George Pelicanos, with his novelistic style scripts and thorough, vivid novels, defends the lives and humanities of individuals who are often neglected by society. 
Yeah, I I wish I knew uh, you know better models. There's so there's there's more liberal models in some countries in, in Europe or even in terms of you know even for serious crime there you're in prison for a short period. Um, but when I spoke to, actually, we just published uh, an interview with someone, you know, it's just, maybe it's more of the radical end of uh, how to abolish prisons. And I, I don't know. I don't know if that's possible. I don't I'm not sure if it is, but. Um... Well, prisons shouldn't be for profit. You know, that's the, what we do in this country is that the prisons are, are run for profit. So the way they make more money is to have is to house more people, lock more people up. Um, uh, nonviolent offenders shouldn't be in prison. When I go to these places, and that, because I stay local, and I've watched a lot of kids grow up in my neighborhood, that some occasionally I'll go to a jail and I'll see one of them there in an orange jumpsuit, and I'll, I'll say to them, "Hey, you know, what are you in for?" Well, it's real, you know, it's parole violation. I got locked up for um, for dealing marijuana, and then. Uh, I was on parole and they caught, you know, and they stopped me and I had, you know, I had a joint in the car for personal use or I had a little weed in the car. I went back to jail. They're in the system for nothing, you know, all these people. So that has to, that should change, but you get politics involved. You know, all these politicians want to be, when they run for reelection or election, their platform is typically, I'm going to be tough on crime. You know, and they have to prove it. They feel like they have to prove it to get elected. Um, it's not just Republicans, by the way. It's politicians across the board. The, 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 the crime bill of 1994 was done under, under a Democratic presidency, and that, that destroyed many American lives. And I believe also, you know, as you say, you're encountering these um, young offenders, and, you know, you, had, you were speaking a little bit about your wild you know, you had a wild period, and you could you have seen if things had turned a little. I I think I, I, there's a there's a story there that things could have gone. I don't know. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's, it's you know it's public knowledge. I mean, I shot a kid when I was a teenager. It was an accident, but certainly um, when the police came to my house and they and they saw. A, a, a white, they didn't know we were Greek, so they saw a white family with, with two loving parents at home and a kid that was, you know, um, they didn't do anything. They didn't, they took the gun, the gun was, the gun was a, wasn't even registered and they didn't do anything. And, and there's no doubt in my mind that, um, and I'm thankful for that because and it wasn't the only time I got in trouble, by the way. I mean, there was other incidents, too, where I, I'd go before a judge and, and they'd, they'd get a look at me and, and they'd say, okay, you know, um, in, in their mind, they'd say, I'm not sending that guy to jail. You know what I mean? But if I'd been black, I would have gone to jail. There's no question in my mind. And, and my life would have been on a, on a different um, on a different path. I wouldn't be sitting here now talking about my books and my television shows. So I, on one hand, I'm, I'm very thankful for that because I didn't need to go to jail. I just needed to grow up. But on the other hand, I'm, I'm very aware of the fact that it was inequitable and, and it continues to be inequitable.
Yeah, definitely reform needs to be done. Are there any um, other programs you're involved with in the D.C. area to do with this? Well, um, I, I was for a long time, I guess 15 years, I was on the board of Penn Faulkner here. Mm -hmm. We go into, um, we bring writers in schools and who meet with in a small classroom with kids and and they the kids read read the book first and then the author comes in and they talk to the kids um uh it, i think it's tremendous because i never had that opportunity i'd never met a writer before and what it does is it de demystifies it the process for kids who can subliminally they can think well you know they're not necessarily going to become novelists or writers but if that person can do it and they're just a person, maybe I can do that or something like it. And that, that's what it does. Um, and I'm talking about, you know, people like Stephen King walking into a classroom of 20 kids in the city and sitting down with people of that magnitude. And also, um, um, you know, a lot of African-American writers and, and, Latinx writers and people of that nature who show, you know, walk in and by example, they, these kids see somebody that looks like them who's made it big time. And, you know, that's not the explicit message we want to send them, but it's the, it's the underlying message. And then turn people on to books, which is a lifelong, um, which is a lifelong thing where, where you see it now, you know, all, all the, during the pandemic, I mean, before this, every discussion, every interview you do is, you know, is, is our books going to survive? You know, what do you think about the future of books? Come on. People are, people are, are, are reading like never before because of this. And they've been reminded of what, what a beautiful thing it is to, because we're all under a lot of stress right now for a lot of different reasons, but just to sit down at night and open up a book and, you're gone, man. You, you escape. You're out of it. It's a wonderful thing. To go into, we didn't discuss um, Treme so much, but again, it has this slowness of um, just just hearing their voices. The plot isn't pulsing along too much that we don't honor the individual voices and the artists. Yeah, I mean, Treme was, was something that I we felt had never been done on television before. It wasn't It wasn't a cop show wasn't a lawyer show, it wasn't set in a hospital. It was a show about everyday people and how they rebuilt their lives after a catastrophic event. And and we gave voice to people that never, hardly ever get on television. Um, and, and it was especially gratifying because the people of New Orleans had been, um, the American government turned their back on them after Katrina. And we wanted to bring them to light and show that, you know, not only is New Orleans a very special place, but they're us, you know, they're Americans too. We can't ever let that happen again. Plus, we we shot all this great music. It was so fun to work on that show. Plus, one of the great things that, about what I do is I get to go live somewhere for a few years that I wouldn't ordinarily, I wouldn't ordinarily do it, but I lived in New Orleans for a few years I lived in New York recently for uh, three years. It's a great way to um, to get out and get new experience. 
just in closing, you know, um, as you think about uh, the future and uh, the kind of world that we're leaving, the next generation, um, what is your message, you know, for young people? What would you like them to know, preserve, and remember? I mean, my, my story is, is I made my life, you know what I mean? I, I, I took chances. I, um, like I said before, I, was, I guess I was naive, but it worked out. I wrote a book, my very first book. I'd never written anything before. And I was completely in, in, in the dark about that. And I wrote it and I didn't know what I was doing. I sent it up to New York. Somebody bought it. And every step of the way I've, I've, I've taken chances and, and, and I wanted, I wanted to try something new. Um, don't waste your life. You know what I mean? Um, take, take those chances and, and, and take risks. Um, I, I just made a movie, um, that a, a small movie in DC called DC Noir, oh, yes. which is based on my short stories. And, and I wrote the scripts and then my son directed one, Nick Pelicanus, uh, Banga Akinabi, who's an actor in a lot of our shows. He was Chris Partlow on the wire and Larry Brown in, in the deuce. He directed one, Stephen Kinagopoulos. I directed one and we just did it. You know, we went out and found the money and we did it. I wanted, I wanted to make a movie and I wanted to direct something it's been a goal of mine so um you have to try that's the that's what my my message to young people is you have to try don't sit around and dream about it well i think that that's a, a beautiful message and i think i want to thank you for your um the courage of your art and your personal example um, for your ongoing project of compassionate storytelling that challenges readers and viewers preconceptions and raises questions about the world we live in and the need for change um, thank you george pelicanos for adding your voice to the creative process This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interview producer on this podcast was Dariana Davis. Digital media coordinator is Yu Young Lee. Has this interview sparked your creative process? If so, you can submit your creative works to submissions at creativeprocess.info. For an opportunity to be included in the projection elements of our exhibition traveling to leading universities or published on our website, www.creativeprocess.info. Want to get involved in exhibitions or interviews? Email us at team at creativeprocess.info.